not doing that? Does anybody here have to be told, don't do that? Because, you know, from the time you were a child, your parents, if you got anywhere near a wall outlet, they leapt, got airborne in slow motion running towards you. No! Because they knew that if you managed to get that metal object jammed inside that thing, you were going to be launched by that, right? How many of y'all have actually experienced wall power? All right, when you do your covenant groups, I, I did believe a little question for this. You need to tell your best story, your best, most shocking story, okay? My best, most shocking story is being, I don't know how old I was, but it wasn't a wall outlet. I knew not to touch that. No one ever told me, the little spark plug coming out of the back of the lawnmower, don't ever touch that. No one told me that. They told me to cut the grass, but they didn't, however, tell me don't ever touch that. So one day, it's running, I'm staring at it, and I'm thinking, what the heck is that? I wonder what that is. I just reached down and grabbed it. And I can promise you, I never did that again, <laughs> ever. <laughs> uh, but, you know, here, get some perspective on this. When you, when you jam something in that wall outlet, you're getting 120 volts of electricity to run through your body. Now, 120 volts, and that's enough for all of us to learn, don't mess with that, don't get around that, do not stick anything in it, don't play with that. Or an electrical engineer has got to figure out, how do we go from a power plant into that wall? Because power plants don't generate 120 volts of electricity. They generate megawatts of power. And so, you know, like one of those lines, you're driving through the country, you see those big, giant, scaffolding-looking things, and there's lines running on them, you know, and they kind of hum if you get a little bit too close to them. Well, that would be because there's 765,000 volts traveling through those lines on their way to eventually becoming 120 volts in your house. So you can imagine what it's like to touch that. Now, that's some power. And Jesus is speaking about the power of God when he says, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So if, if what we have here is Acts chapter 1 to Acts chapter 4 is basic your power grid distribution pattern that the power plan of God is going to distribute his power into wall outlets here, what we have when we get to Acts chapter 4 is the day the squirrel touched the transformer. You ever seen that happen in your neighborhood? There's a loud boom, lights flicker, maybe your power goes out, and everybody wonders, what was that? All right, well, that's kind of what happened in the story that we're going to read about today, right? Acts chapter 1, you're going to receive this really different, mysterious power in your life. Acts 2, verse 4, power up. Pentecost was power up. Spirit falls, power comes to the church. And then what we see between there and our story today is the expressions of that power. It's like, you know, we know this. We know what it is to live in a, in a house that doesn't have any power, right? You remember? We live in hurricanes around here. So when the power comes, I mean, for us, it's like winning the lottery. It's like, oh, everybody all at once, oh. We had lights flicker after Isaac, and it was cause for celebration. They just flickered. They came on for three seconds and went off. But we knew there's power out there, guys. It didn't come back on for two more days, but we knew that there was power somewhere out there. Uh, all right, so the Spirit of God comes, and, and it's like appliances power up everywhere. Toasters begin to toast, and, and lights come on. 
mixers begin to stir. The people of God have got power in them. Some begin to preach in the power of God. And and some, by the power of God, have their ears opened. And conviction comes into their souls. And the power of God comes to them. And it's like a light. They, They regenerate and they come to life. And then some begin to minister with the power that's now in them. And miracles are performed. Remember, the the man is healed who's lame for all these years. And then we get to this passage today, and the power of God is present amongst the people of God. And in them, this, this current, this lighting up the appliance that you are causes this life to animate. And they begin to do some rather unusual stuff. They begin to care for one another in incredibly sacrificial ways. Right? This, is, this is the power that was being described by Jesus. Let's go back, and I read this passage to you already, but let's look at it again. Verse 32, chapter 4. Now, the full number of those who believed, they were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but that everything they had was in common. And with great power... The apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as as many as were owners of lands or houses, they sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus. He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Okay, this is, this is not normal. This is not normal activity. This is unnatural for people who, by nature, by our nature, we are concerned about me. Concerned about my future. I'm concerned about my well being. I'm concerned about the people that I love that are closest to me and them being cared for. And, and you know, hey, what, I, what I've got in my life, I, I need for me, don't you understand? I mean, I know there's needs over there and I mean, my heart goes out to them, but, but I, I need this for me and for mine. And these folks do exactly the opposite, something very, very unnatural. Sometimes we don't realize that. Nobody asked Barnabas the question here about Barnabas. Uh, you, you, you selling the land that your family passed on to you, man? Uh, dude, what's that, what's that going to do for you financially? Where, where are you going to be? What about your future? I mean, your family gave you that land so that, that you'd have a place later on to, to raise crops or have some kind of a farm so you could have sheep and you'd have an income and a, you're selling that? I mean, do you ever stop and think that, that their giving on this event created insecurity for them? Of course it did. It's unlikely that they were American rich. They were living in a third world setting. And yet they did something incredible with the stuff that was in their life. Right, which makes me want to ask us this question. Why, why do we have stuff in our life? Why do we have money? Why do we have bank accounts that have money in them? Why do we own property, and multiple pieces of property perhaps? Why, why do we have those things? When you go to approach that, and this is the way of life issue, and all of us approach these things, 
be careful what normal category you answer. Are you, are, are you a normal American? You're a normal Christian. See, a normal American has personal property for personal reasons. You know, it's, it's for provision. It's for necessities in life, absolutely. It's also for the future. Right? We're saving for retirement one day. There's this retirement idea. The retirement idea, I'm not against it, but it sounds a little bit like this. You know, you've got this one life to live. Maybe it's 75, 80 years long now. And, and, and you know, after, after that 80-year mark, you're done. I mean, it's over. It's nothing. And so you don't want to use up all your precious time working the whole way here. Get towards the end and kick back a little bit and relax some and just coast until the end. All right, whatever. Just a reminder, though, 80 is not the end for you. When you keel over, your life is going to continue. There, there isn't this, oh, my gosh, I better live it up while I got a chance. Listen, when you go to heaven, you're going to be living it up more than you can stand. So don't feel like you got a bad retirement in place right now. If you're like, oh, I don't know what my retirement's going to be. Um, well, you got a good one. It was provided by funds that you didn't put a dime into, but it's been provided for you on your behalf. So don't, don't freak on that. But, but we're saving towards that. Most of us are, are we've, we've, we've been influenced by America, so in our veins is uh, newer, bigger, better, more. It's just flowing in us, right? I mean, every day the newspaper comes, we look at something, oh, I wish I had that. That's a newer version. Oh, I didn't even know they had that now. It's just, we want stuff like that. And then you have people like this story that are Christians who have come into an encounter with the living God who has saved them from the fallenness of their life and brought them into the household of God where it is God's agenda and plan to fill the earth with his glory through the people of God, to proclaim the gospel and for their lives to demonstrate the effect of what it looks like when God resurrects a lost, selfish human being. That's what the church is. And they've come into that. And if they're there, then now you ask the question, why are there funds in our lives? Why is there property and stuff in our lives? As a Christian, I can't separate those items of income and funds and bank accounts and property and belongings. I can't separate. My life is for the glory of God. That's what my life is about as a believer now. And my mission as an individual who lives in Metairie, Louisiana, is the same mission these guys were on in the first century, who didn't live anywhere near us, dressed like us, even have a bank account. But they lived the same exact mission, the proclamation of the glory of God in the Great Commission for God's people. So when we ask the question, why, okay, so why are there funds in our lives? Or why is there anything in our life? Everything exists for the glory of God. So when they came to grips with that and there was a need there, then everything became something that could be used. Now, now remember, they kept meeting from house to house. Not everybody sold their houses. Not everybody did this. But I think the spirit of the gathering there was, I need to consider, everything in my life is for the glory of God. So nothing's off limits here. It's, it's all in my life for God. Now, where does this idea come from? And where does the... Where does the gumption to pull the trigger on that kind of stuff come from. And we look at these examples in the New Testament and we're, we're provoked by them. I am. These, these are amazing people doing some amazing things. Why? Because they were amazing people and you and I are slackers? I mean, these, man, just better raw material right here. 
I'm sure in this church there wasn't anybody who wanted bigger, better, newer, or more. Not a one, no. I'm sure they just, they just were raised. Their whole view of life was just sell everything always, give it away. Really? I thought human nature is kind of what created America. America didn't create America. Human nature did. So we want stuff. They wanted stuff. They're not any different. The raw material of what was in this church is just like the raw material of what's in us. It was there too. But there's a little key verse hanging out here. Verse 33, in the midst of all this activity. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Why did these people do this kind of stuff? Because the power of God was in their midst, according to scriptures, working in them to will and to do of his good pleasure. So suddenly, out of nowhere, selfish hearts had a willingness to do something they never would have done on their own. And the grace of God, God's favor was upon their lives to meet them as they did it, to make sacrifices and God would meet them with favor in the future. Maybe, maybe their appliances just stopped breaking down for the next 10 years. No problems there. They gave and God met them in an amazing way. Great grace was upon them all. What, what does that mean? Do you ever stop and consider that? That you're not just like anybody else walking the highways of this world. You uniquely have a benefit from God that great grace is upon your life. There's some unique favor on us as God's people. Well, that's, that's what's taking place here. And this power that Jesus talked about, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Next thing you know, that power enabled people to start selling things and giving away. That was the power of God. Listen, don't, don't develop categories where the power of God is only that moment where somebody comes forward and one thing happens to her, or only that thing happens. And, and everybody knows the power of God only happens in church. Uh, no, the power of God happened with checkbooks right here. The power of God persuaded hearts to give in mind-blowing ways. But I want to draw our attention to something here. We are talking about the power of God in the midst of the people of God. And to stay with our, where'd my sign go, man? What's up with you guys? Stop playing with me. Leave my sign up. The environment where the God of the universe dwells, it's got holy voltage in it. Now, Intergy is kind enough to us to creatively get into our world and run these public service announcements. And they got the dumb little monkey, you know, little monkey. And he keeps doing something like setting his ladder against the power line. He keeps trying to figure out ways to tell you, listen, you don't know this average citizen. You think 120 volts is bad. That line up there, you don't want to be messing with that, all right? And the little monkey leans his ladder and and the commercial ends. Don't monkey around power lines. Listen, there needs to be something in the Bible here that sounds a little bit like that. Don't, don't monkey around God. Don't be careless. You shall receive power. And you might want to put this sign up in the church where you gather. Because that power is going to be in the midst of people. And this powerful God, you, you might want to be warned and cautioned. It is the power of God that is in the midst of you. Ephesians, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 5. 
Right, we just had Barnabas as an example of the sacrifice he made and the giving that he did. And then immediately, chapter 5 starts with the word but. Right, so you can't forget what's gone before it. Right, Acts chapter 4 was on its way. And it wanted you to see an example of the power of God touching Barnabas that made him willing to make such a sacrifice. Because it's about to show you another example of the power of God touching somebody else. But... A man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. Right? I'm not going to take time to take this passage apart. I'm strictly trying to deal with the warning sign behind me. But I just want to highlight two things real quickly. One, this passage, the one before it, is not an argument for communism, where when you come into Christianity, you take all your goods, you sell it, you give it to the church, and the church will, will meet your needs and disperse the funds as they see fit. Some people were led to do some stuff like that. It was an example of what some did. It was not a mandate or requirement that anybody else do it. As a matter of fact, that's the argument Peter brings to Ananias. Ananias, why are you misrepresenting this? If you wanted to keep some of the money, dude, you could have kept the whole property. You didn't have to sell it. And it, when you did go and sell it, you could have done with the money anything you wanted to. You could have given a portion of it from the get-go. What made you think you... All right, so it's, it's fine for you to own property. It's fine for you to not sell it. It's fine for you to sell it and do something besides give it to the church, okay? The, all right, so this is not, it's not normal to interpret this passage in a way that makes you feel like you've got to sell all your property and give it to the church. Not right. Secondly, uh, this is a good point for you to see the Holy Spirit's identification as God himself. The Holy Spirit is in the midst of God's people. He is the dwelling presence of God. He is God himself in the midst of his people. So when the lie goes forth in the community of the people of God and their deception takes place, they have lied to the Holy Spirit, Peter says, and he, and he equates you didn't lie to men, but you lied to God. So when you lie to the Holy Spirit, you're lying to God. Why is that? Because the Holy Spirit is God. Right, so if you're looking for Trinitarian theology, you'll find it there as well. Where did I stop? Verse 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, see, this is, this is I have to admit, this, this is where texting is helpful. <laughs> I, ha I have to admit that. Had she had a smartphone. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, the story would not have turned out this way. Uh, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you, whether you sold, <laughs> she's going to fall for this, you know. Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yeah, yeah, for that much. Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? 
Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her away and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. That's why I say we'd be having a different meeting here this morning, right? If last week two of us were taken out of here by ambulance, dead, and we were coming back together, great fear. Oh, my gosh, what happened? How How do we even make sense of this? How do we understand what just took place? Derek Thomas says, what is poignant to consider is that this contrast existed within the same community that had experienced great grace. That's why, that's why I'm bleeding over from four to five here because somebody stuck a five in between this story. It doesn't mean that five's a new thought. Connected, you got, a, you got one story about a generous church being moved by the power of God and Barnabas as, a, as an example of what others have done. Because great grace was in the midst of this people. And a few verses later, great fear is in the midst of that same group of people. The outpouring of the Spirit upon the New Testament church did not relieve it of all difficulty and tension. Some professing Christians remained ungodly in their hearts when Pentecost and its consequent blessings were barely two months past. We have a tendency, and I want to rescue us from this as we read through the book of Acts, to glamorize the book of Acts in a way that it doesn't glamorize itself, to normalize and act as though, oh, if we could just act like, if we could just act like the first century church. All right, you want this page? You know, we'd get rid of ushers, and we'd have guys in, like, white suits with a, with a thing that rolls out a gurney that just, you know, yeah, take the two out this week. wonder who it'll be next week. That'll be great for attendance, I'm sure. But the New Testament church, it, it, it was a conglomeration of people in a bunch of different places. It, it was messy. It was, it was not always sweet and nice and perfect and everything went well and everybody did the right thing. They didn't always do the right thing. People were in different places. I mean, we're, we're left here guessing. We're not told. We're Ananias and Sapphira believers. I don't know. We're not really told. They were in the midst of the gathering of the people of God. They were participating in the life of the, of the church. But we don't really know much about them except for the end result of their sin and their deception. Listen, this is normal. Normal in the church is that ain't everybody in the same place. Normal in the church is that Barnabas probably sat in the same row with Ananias and Sapphira. And a man so could be moved by God as the Spirit of God was moving. And then you could have another couple who saw this as an opportunity to further their reputation. To lie, to deceive, to create a false pretense. I don't know what happened here. Maybe Barnabas gave and everybody went, wow, Barnabas. And everybody talked about Barnabas. Can you believe what Barnabas did? Oh, Barnabas, Barnabas. Just the talk around town was Barnabas, Barnabas, Barnabas. And, and the evil intent of the heart of Ananias said, ah. I want, to be, I want to be noticed like that. I want people to think of me that way. What can, what can we do? Hey, we've got property. Let's, let's sell it. 
We'll sell it and, and, uh, and, and we'll act as though we're bringing the whole thing just like Barnabas did. We'll act as though we're bringing everything to the apostles and, and give it all, give it all to them. We're, we'll keep back half of it. Why did they do this? And what exactly is the sin that's so horrible? It, it wasn't their selling. It wasn't them being cheap. They could have kept the property and never given a thing. And they could have attended church the next week, by the way. What was, what was the problem here? It, it was the deception. It was the false pretense that was being presented. It was the exaggeration that was going on. It was the misrepresentation of what was glorious in their life. They wanted glory for themselves rather than wanting glory for God. And that was the last meeting they were ever a part of. Now, if you're humble at all, the real shocking thing about this story is not, oh my gosh, this could happen in church to Ananias and Sapphira. See, that gives away the fact that we don't understand the power of God. Because what we should be asking is, why hasn't that happened to me yet? That's the more puzzling question for me. Because maybe I haven't done exactly what these two guys have done, but I can shop my history of being a believer, being a believer, and know that there have been plenty of moments when my agenda was not about the glory of God, it was about the glory of Keith, and I was using something about the glory of God to further the glory of Keith. And they used an offering so that people would be thinking, wow, aren't, aren't you awesome? All right, you don't have to raise your hand on this, but anybody here guilty of that? Anybody here been more interested in your reputation and what this does for you rather than what it does for the glory of God? That, that attitude, that's what got too close to the voltage and got consumed. And then what happens in the church? I mean, this is, this is a church on the move. Good stuff is happening in this church. It's been an outbreak. Pentecost has brought many people are getting saved, and they're coming together faithfully, and they're sacrificing for each other. This is, this is a textbook. You'd love to be a part of this church. Great grace is in the midst of them, and immediately great fear is in the midst of them as well. God, what are you doing? This church is going and blowing, God. Why? Why the brakes? Why this screeching wheel that got halted all of a sudden? They were doing something that mattered for the kingdom of God, and all of a sudden, everybody was afraid, and great fear was in their midst. And I'm going to tell you what the next part of this message is about. Can, can you understand that in the midst of God's great grace, he wants there to be also a great sense of fear of him? When the people of God begin to operate without that, God steps in, throws the brakes on, and says, look, I'm not against everything you're doing here because the church is going to go on. This is, a, this is a bump on the highway. The church is going to go on and do great things. God is still moving in the midst of them. Be careful. Be careful how you interpret what's going on in a gathering of people. God steps in, one thing happens, and next thing you know, we're kind of like, Ichabod, why don't you just change the church name over there? First Ichabod of this. Uh, we don't know all that God's doing right there. This was one thing God did in the midst of great grace was still upon them. And incredible things were going to happen through this church. But significant to God was the fact that there is a lack of fear of me in this place. That's significant. To God. Derek Thomas says, here, 
Luke presents us with a contrast between great grace he described previously and the great fear that had come upon the church. The contrast is deliberate. The story of Ananias and Sapphira must be one of the most terrifying in the New Testament. Did God really destroy them? Does God do such things today? How can we reconcile this episode with the Bible's teaching that God is love? Thomas goes on and identifies from the passage four things. He says, need underlining in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. I'm just going to mention two. First, the seriousness of sin. Sin is always a serious issue. Sin is always a serious issue. We need a new normal in this category. We have treated sin like it's common, like it's normal for us to be open to its persuasion and embrace it. And it's normal for us to be hanging out together where it's just normal for all of us to be putting one foot in sin and one foot in righteousness. I hope this story adjusts that idea that amidst the people of God, there needs to be a sign that says, caution, holy voltage is in this place. You have received a power that you don't fully understand. You need to be careful. Sin is serious. Third, the holiness of God. The incident underlines that the holiness of God is not just an Old Testament doctrine. At the cusp of the emerging church of the New Testament, God discloses himself as holy. Just as the church is taken off, God makes sure that this is a reference point. That you remember I am in your midst, and I am not like you. And do not think for a moment you have me fully figured out, and you can relax and be whatever you'd like to be. You are in my presence, and my power is in your midst. Caution. Caution is the right word. I, I shop carefully that word. I wanted to say warning. Eric actually had to manipulate the sign for me to make it say exactly what it says. That is not a sign that exists anywhere, you know. Just here, the original sign said danger. Mm, danger. Yeah, not quite the word I'm looking for. Caution. People of God. Caution is the right word. Caution, it means care. Thoughtfulness. A lack of haste. And close attention that enables somebody to avoid the risks involved in a task or procedure. Caution. It's your walk, your walk with God, your day-to-day dealing with stuff in your life. Is, is it characterized by caution? Is there care involved in what you're about to do and not do and why you're doing it? Or is there haste? Just needs to get done. Well, I don't have time for that. Or I'm not going to take the time. I'm not going to be in, inconvenienced by that. Just hasty. Just hasty. I'll do whatever just to get it off the table. Deal with it. Is it thoughtful? Am I thoughtful about what I'm going to say next in a situation? How I'm going, to re- I'm going to respond to sinful activity maybe that's come to me, and, and I'm going to respond to that. Am I, am I thoughtful about that? Caution. I appreciate Intergy and 
And you see an energy truck pull up. They got a long gadget that's got a particular makeup. They handle those power lines a certain way. They wear gloves that are so stinking thick you wonder how they can even move their hands. They've got hard hats on. Right, you'd, you'd get a very different impression if, if when we were done with worship, we took offering, I came walking up here and, uh, and, I, and I put on a hard hat and I, I strapped on these big, giant, cumbersome gloves and I, and I, with fear in my face, reached down to open the Bible up like this, this thing could go off on me. You'd have a really different impression about what's going on here, wouldn't you? You understand, we, we have lost a sense of what it means to have God in our midst. And we are not cautious, we are casual. When you look at this story, I don't know how you are, I encountered this story, I immediately traveled back into the Old Testament and several similar stories came to mind. God called the people to himself, right, Exodus 19. He called the people to himself, right, he chose to go through the lineage of Abraham, he related to Abraham, his lineage, he got to a point where that lineage becomes a nation, he calls that nation into a meeting. This is their first meeting with God. This is a how do you do, nice to meet you meeting. It happens at Mount Sinai. And this is what God says to Moses. Exodus 19, verse 12. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Verse 21, a little bit later. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. This is God's nice to meet you. I'm God with the nation of Israel. He calls them to the mountain and he says, look, Moses, I'm, you ain't nothing special, dude, but I'm just telling you right now, I'm giving you permission to put your feet on this mountain and come up and visit me. And I'm going to meet with you. But let me just tell you right now, you warn everybody else. I'm high voltage. If they get close to me, they're going to get fried. Now, I, I don't necessarily, although I think I could be uninformed, I don't necessarily conclude by that, that God's waiting like a sniper to pick people off. I do think there is an element of God that says, God says, I commanded you to do this. And if you do not do it, I will respond in judgment. I do think that's a deliberate element of God. But I think part of what's here is the nature of God and the nature of sin that dwells in us is if you get too close to electricity and you make, con the nature of electricity will fry you. You touch 765,000 uh, volts and, and you, won't even, you won't even know you just got fried. I mean, it would happen so fast. The nature of electricity will do that. The nature of God, I think God's saying, I, I, you are my people, but listen, I'm not like you. You can't treat me like I'm one of you. You come close to the mountain, but Moses, you tell them, do not, don't even let your foot touch this mountain. You stay at a distance. Now, God rumbled. If you read all this story, God rumbled, and he, there was trumpet sounds, and there was this fiery, smoky presence on the mountain Exodus there, 
And in this introductory meeting, if you'll read, start in Exodus 19, read the next few chapters, you'll read that God did all of that on purpose. He says, this is why. So that the fear of me would remain in you. Does God want you to be afraid of him? Yes. Yes, he does. All right, this story immediately took me back to Leviticus chapter 10, my thinking. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron. All right, sons of Aaron. These, this is the priesthood. These are those who have special permission from God amongst the people of God to come near to him. They have special permission. Others do not. This is very informing in a world today that thinks, hey, I can just drive up wind to God. You know, I'm busy. I got my life going on. I'm a decent person. I'm not too bad. But I'm just going to drive up wind to God and say, hey, God, why don't you help me out with this business deal going down over here? And I'm just going to pull up to God, and God's going to get on my plan. That doesn't sound like the Bible here, does it? When God shows up and says, look, Moses, you come up to me. Everybody else stay at a distance. Oh, and by the way, you're 12 tribes, but I'm going to give special permission to only one tribe and only of this family to be able to draw near to me as priests. Nobody else gets to do that. Now, when you hear that, you learn something about God. This God, whoo, it's high voltage. You don't approach him casually. Well, one day, two of the priests did. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. And I would guess it was more than 765,000 volts. Then Moses said to Aaron, it is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. That's, that's God's disposition of when you come to me, you treat me as holy and you honor me. Right? That's what God calls on man to do, to treat him as holy, cautiously, carefully, full of respect for this awesome God who has by his mercy allowed us to relate to him and to treat him with honor. Now listen, I, I'm not sure I want all my decisions put in the crosshairs of, Keith, was that a... Was that a decision made with the intention of treating God as holy? Did you go there in order to proclaim that God is holy and to honor him? Did you do that act? Did you relate to that person that way? You made that decision because of your view on God being holy and your desire to honor him. Right. That's a tough one. Second Samuel chapter 6. Verse 5. King David is finally, after about 20 years, King David finally is, is going to get the ark that's been away from the people of God. And he's going to bring it back. This is, this, is a, this is a day of celebration. This is a day where a man has fought to do the right thing. He's doing the right thing. The people of God are celebrating. The ark is on its way back to Jerusalem. The ark representing the presence of God on earth. This is a great day to celebrate. 2 Samuel 6, verse 5. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah, 
put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David, David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord to that day. And he said, how, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. David took it out aside in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his, all of his household, right? Nobody got fried. Safe. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened calf. Now, if you don't pay attention to this story, you dismiss what happened. Right now, the ark is being carried by men who traveled six steps. How was it being moved before? They put it on a cart and had some oxen pull it. That makes sense. It's heavy. It's big. They saw the Philistines do that. That's how the Philistines moved the ark. So they thought, hey, we'll do that. Now, here's the only problem. God had specifically commanded that only certain people could touch the ark and only certain people could carry the ark, and there were poles designed specifically for these men to put into this thing and put it on their shoulders and to carry it that way. I noticed here that David's making sure it's carried that way. A guy dead in your midst will make you pay attention to a lot of things. All right, here's the, here's the difficulty. Here's the difficulty. What do, what do you do when God's story turns people off, what do you do with that? I mean, maybe you're visiting here today. Or maybe you're just glad today you didn't invite a visitor. <laughs> right? All right, listen. There's an element of us that I would agree with and I would think through and I can find references for it in the book of Acts as well as in the way in which Jesus ministered that this is not the lead story for every encounter with people and in coming to know God. I think it's right and appropriate for people to pray carefully about how they present God to someone who doesn't know God. I think it's appropriate for us to do that. So we come to a story here in Acts chapter 5. Do we skip it? Now, if you, if you don't expositorily preach through books, you, you definitely can. Just conveniently, 20 years worth of preaching, and you never preached on that verse. Wow, that's it. how did that happen, you know? <clears throat> but if you just preach through a book, you find yourself standing in the meeting where Ananias and Sapphira are dead. And you don't get to avoid it. You have to bring it up. So, Keith, you're going you're gonna to tell people that are visiting here today, people who maybe have very little concept of God, you're gonna, you're gonna, this is a story you're going to tell them about God. All right, let's make one thing clear. I'm not telling this story. This is a story God chose to tell about himself. You realize Acts chapter 5 could be about something very different than this. 
Acts chapter 5, some churches would actually like this version much better, could be about the day that Ananias and Sapphira sold a piece of land, kept some of it to the side, and invested in the kingdom, and now they're moving into their new house. That's a cool story, right? It's this investment program. You know, if you give to God, God will outgive you. And you'll just have shiny new houses and cars everywhere in your life. That, that's, the story could be like that. Or the parade of returning the ark back to Jerusalem. It could end with this big, long moment where David, on behalf of God, thanked all the volunteers. And who's a Bro, thank you so much for catching that ark when it fell from the cart. Everybody, can we just thank Uzzah together? That could be 2 Samuel chapter 6. God wrote these stories. And in the history of God dealing with man, and even in the book of Acts, if there's a thousand stories to choose from, God chose 15 of them. Proportionally, I think I'm maybe close. You realize God's done some other things in history besides what's in here. He chose these stories. He chose to tell you and me about the day they came to the foot of Mount Sinai. He chose to make sure we understood there was a day when Nadab and Abihu were casual, not cautious, and they were dead. He chose to tell us about Uzzah, who was well-intended but disobedient. He chose to tell us about Ananias and Sapphira. Why, God, why are you telling us this? Because this is who God is. I put a stupid looking phrase in your outline called singing songs about Californium. If I just tell you Californium is not about the state of California. Do any of you know what Californium is? One. All right. Let's suppose I'm standing up here today and I'm saying, hey guys, uh, I got I got a pound of Californium, and I, I just want, I want to give it to you. I'll give you a pound of Californium. Oh, and I, I got a pound of gold, too. Which one you want? Well, yeah, you take the gold, right? All, all $18,000 worth of a pound of gold. Oh, my goodness, about 18000 Is that about right? $18,000 a pound of gold, huh? Close. How, how much? <laughs> Quickly, I don't have all day. You don't know. You you sell coins, you sell gold, and you don't know how much it's worth. Dude, I'm about to drum up some business for you. That didn't help. All right, whatever it's worth. All right, 25000 I don't know. Inflationary measures. Yeah, we don't want to do math. This is not a math class. This is us preaching the Bible today. Math is later. No, no. I don't, I don't care who Troy is. I don't, much less that he's involved in math. Uh, anyway... You got some money here. All right, so you take the $18,000, $20,000 worth of gold because you're familiar with gold. But what you didn't realize is that a pound of Californium is worth over $10 billion because you didn't know what it was. Thank you. It's a wise man. See, you should do business with him. See how he handles that kind of stuff? <laughs> All right, we, we stand up here week in and week out. We stand and we sing, and we sing about things that cost something like forgiveness. We sing songs about forgiveness. We sing songs about a debt being forgiven, that we owed a debt. We sing songs about something as strange to us as Californium, the righteousness of Christ that's been imputed to us. It's now ours. And we sing songs. We stupidly 
sing songs because we don't know how much this is worth. All right, I'm going to close with this thought. It's not where the outline goes, but Hebrews chapter 8. Eric, go ahead and come back up here. The God who installs warning fences and caution signs and tells the leaders of God's people to warn the people about how to get around me. That God, that God has done something so amazing, so valuable in the person of Jesus Christ that it allows us to read a passage like this in Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 16, this, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Do you, do you get a sense that you've read most of the Bible? Most of the Bible has been God telling people, don't get too close. Don't get too close. Be careful. Don't come around me casually. Don't get too close. Don't get too close. And then he sends his son on our behalf, and his son does something that now causes God to turn and say, come near with full assurance. Come near to me. Come to me. Come. Come. With your conscience sprinkled clean. You know what your conscience is? It's that thing that keeps telling you, you can't come. Do you have any idea what you did? You think Ananias and Sapphira are bad. Have you read my resume? Do you know what my past is like? And your conscience screams that out and God turns and looks you in the face and he says, you come. You come to me. No longer you stay away. You come to me. But you understand, he's not a different God. If somehow you lower God's voltage to where, you know, he's no longer high voltage. He's a little nine-volt battery. You know those things? You need to stick on. You know, you get around God casually, what will happen? Oh, well, he'll tingle you, you know, a little, hmm. He's nine volts now. On the other side of the cross, he was 765,000 volts before the cross. After the cross, he's a little nine-volt God. Do you understand? He's the same God. He hasn't changed at all. What's amazing is the change that you and I can have access to him without being incinerated. That's what's amazing. And so when we sing songs about amazing grace, if you don't get this concept right, you sing small, wimpy, little bitty, meaningless songs about something called grace. Because you've got a nine-volt God. Not one who, if you got around him carelessly, be incinerated in a second. That's still the same God. 
God, why do you do this? This church is just getting started. Why do you do this? Well, one, because he's God, and we have to learn to relate to God as God, not as we'd like him to be. Please don't avoid these stories in the Bible. If you avoid these stories in the Bible, this is what you're guilty of. You're guilty of creating God in your own preference. God wrote these stories. But I'm uncomfortable by that. I hate the thought of that. But when it makes your skin crawl, freak you out, bother you tremendously, now, now you'll go running toward the gospel like you ain't never run toward it in your life. Until this becomes real, you don't really need the gospel, do you? Because who's afraid of a little nine-volt shock? What's the big deal? Uh, here's what the big deal is. At the end of time, when you stand before God in judgment, there will be nothing held back. And if your sins are not forgiven... You, you will face a power you have no idea what you will face you haven't watched a horror movie that could illustrate this because the power of God is like no other power you have ever known and that day is coming for every single one of us and if you cannot draw near to God now with full assurance because your assurance is in the person and work of Christ, well, then you should be very, very disturbed today. What, what, what do I do? Dumb that down for everybody today? Ananias and Sapphira really were dead. And God wanted to make a statement to people about himself on that day. That's who God is. Can I give this to you on the basis of who you are? Because sometimes that's what interests us. Well, give me a reason for me. All right, I'll give you a reason for you. I'm not going to read the whole quote here, but on that next page, it's a little quote from a storyline in the Chronicles of Narnia where the little girl's about to meet Aslan for the first time. And she's, she's curious about what it's like to meet a lion. She asks a question. Is Aslan safe? Aslan plays the role of Christ in the, story. And the, Mr. Beaver answers and says, haven't you been listening to what we've been telling you? Who said anything about safe? No, Aslan is not safe. But he's good. Can I tell you, God is not safe. He's not safe. And I got to read this, and I'm sorry to take a little extra time to do this, but I think this will mean something to you in terms of why the fear of God is important to you tomorrow, not just in eternity, but tomorrow, and how you live your life today. <clears throat> Randy Alcorn says, God is good, <clears throat> but until we understand the truth that he is not safe, he is not under our control, until we come to grips with the truth of his uncompromising holiness, we will never begin to grasp his amazing grace. God's not a genie under our control. He is the master. When we fancy ourselves masters, it can be intimidating to agree to be a servant. Christ is in charge of the universe, whether or not we recognize him. But when we do, we honor him by submitting to his lordship. Ecclesiastes 8.13 says, Yet, because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them. Fearing God 
is in our best interest. We all must fear, but, but if you fear God, you need fear no one and nothing else, even the devil. If you do not fear God, you'll ultimately end up fearing many things beside him. All right, so can I put this in your world? Let me just say this first. I think the reason why you want to fear God is to honor the God who said, you better fear me. Period. I could end the, I could end the message right there. But the Bible also goes on and informs us. Part of the reason why some of us are turned in knots, turned upside down, living life horribly, with our stomachs living in our throats and afraid of things and there's fear of men and who will, who will approve of me? Will I fit in? What will they think if I wear those shoes to school? And we grow up, we're conscious of what we sound like and how we compare and whether our hair is right and, and oh my gosh, now this stuff is going public on Facebook. Now you can't even come home from school and leave it alone. Now it's, you left school, but they're still talking. And you get to read it. <laughs> this is a great invention. And, and we're so hung up on being afraid of so many things. Can, if the Bible is true, maybe the reason why we're so afraid of so many things is we just don't have a sense of fearing God. Because if I had a sense of how great God was, how terrifyingly great God was, I might not only cautiously get around him, but I might also dare to believe big things about him as well. If, if I wondered whether or not the house could get powered up and I was aware that there's 765,000 volts going through that line right there, it can power a city. I might believe, well, I bet you could turn my lights on. See, I might daily begin to think differently about the things I'm afraid of because I have a big opinion of God. If you got a nine-volt God, you got big problems that you should be afraid of. So you don't get to exchange this. You got you to gotta get scared, freaked out by God the way David was, the way the church was in the first century here. Great fear fell on them all. It'll rescue you from being afraid of everything else. Let's stand up together. I don't want to necessarily have us feel caught off guard, but Acts 5 catches you off guard. It's one success moment after another. It's power. It's people believing big. It's generosity unleashed. And then all of a sudden, two people in the gathering of your church are dead. Well, I guess we're caught off guard. Lord, today, here we are. Saved by serving, seeking the same God. The same God. The God from Mount Sinai. The same God. The God who selected Aaron and his children. The same God. The God who would not tolerate even the good intention of Uzzah to stretch his hand out in disobedience to you. The same God. Lord, if, if we've come to know your son, he has done something on our behalf that has not changed you. It has given us access to you. 
for your people, Lord, you are still so unknown in so many ways. Your power we don't have a category for. Your righteousness, Lord, this Californium you've given to us is a gift. It's, it's so valuable. God, help us. Help us. Catch us off guard this morning. But I believe some here just need to hear the words again. Your sin is serious. Stop treating it like it's not important. Your sin is serious. God, this morning, would you help us go from casual to cautious, appropriately cautious. But I pray for believers in this meeting, those who have been purchased by the blood of your son, those who have put their hope in your salvation through Christ, but yet somehow, Lord, normal for us has become a nine-volt God. I pray you'd rescue us this morning, Lord. God, I pray you'd make us trying to figure out how does great grace and great fear sit in the same sentence. God, how does it sit in the same church? Great grace and great fear. Oh, Lord, it does. And we must have it, Lord. You made sure from the outset that people were aware you Holy God, Lord, this morning, from front to back, find each of us, Lord. Am I, am I taking my sins seriously? Or am I in a pattern? Am I just continuing? Oh, God, this morning, adjust us. Adjust us for you, Lord, that we might have the benefit of fearing God. We might, in our lives, take on the benefits of fearing God knowing you in such a way that we will not be casual about those things that are actually destroying us as we seek to enjoy them. Rescue us. Strike our hearts, Lord, with an awareness. Make us careful and thoughtful about our lives. Listen, if you're here this morning, I'm going to dismiss folks in just a minute, but if you're here this morning and God this morning, right now, and I believe he is, and I have felt this weight I believe God is saying to some of you, your sin is serious. And before you take one more step out into this world and get further involved in the deceitfulness of sin, this morning God is saying you have an opportunity right now to walk cautiously and carefully. My power is in this place. And what you have not been able to be free of, my power can free you can cause you to walk in obedience to me. It can inspire your heart to turn from those things. It can break the course of habits and the secret sins and secret places. I can do in your life by my power what you've never thought could happen. Listen, this morning, if you need to stay and pray for a moment, I invite you to come forward and take your sin seriously and deal with it seriously. Do not walk out of here dealing with sin the way you've always dealt with it. If it's serious, deal with it seriously. So whether this is easy or hard for you, I don't know. But get up here and pray. And don't, listen, care more about the sense of the holiness of God than you care about what anybody else thinks in this place. That's what Ananias and Sapphira's problem was. It wasn't their, their cheapness and their money. It was what everybody else would think about me. Don't pull an Ananias and Sapphira. I don't feel like hauling you out of here dead today. Don't be concerned about what anybody else thinks. 
if you need God to step in and say, my power is greater than that sin, let him break the power of it today. Let his power, that should make us afraid of him a little bit, let the grace of God invite you to come. Listen, if you're here today, I know I scared everybody half to death. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, this really is who God is. And, and all we've spent time in talking about today is the, is the voltage of God, that kind of power. But this same high voltage God is a high love God, a high merciful God a cleansing, gracious God. It's why he would take his own son and hook all the volts up to him. Do you understand? Jesus took full voltage on the cross from God so that you and I could receive mercy. If you're here today and you don't know what that is, to turn your life over to Christ and to give it to him fully and to trust him, trust what he did, not you being good. If you think you're going to go from here and be good enough to avoid being zapped by God, that'll never happen. That's not God's way. His way was to send his son to do it on your behalf and for you to put your hope in Christ that it was enough. And it is enough. But you got to do it at some point. Maybe this morning. If you haven't done that, do it this morning. Receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you want to come up to the front here and just ask for prayer, I'll be glad to pray with you afterwards. But I'm going to let Eric closes, and then I'm going to let folks be dismissed, and I'm going to let folks pray. So let's leave folks here to pray. If you need to come, come from where you are. If you have not been taking sin seriously, you need to come. You need to come. Father, thank you for this picture of you. Lord, I pray that we would be a, a church that is careful, thoughtful, Lord, both thoughtful when we seek to engage sin, but thoughtful when our consciences accuse us as well. That we have this unique privilege to draw near to God because of the righteousness, the valuable righteousness of another that's been given to us. And Lord, we don't draw near feeling like we're going to get incinerated. God, we draw near with confidence. This great and mighty God welcomes us. Lord, convince our hearts that we might be careful and thoughtful about what we think about you. In Jesus' name.
service, we want to taste the unique hope that is in Christ for us. 
going back to my previous point, I think sometimes we serve that up week in and week out and we don't taste it because we don't see its value. We don't see how amazing it is to be loved by a God like this that the righteousness of God would actually dwell in us should leave us out of this building in an amazing way when we're just not amazed enough. So what if we just left the way they left after Ananias and Sapphira had been hauled out dead and they went back to their homes in great fear. This is post-cross. They were preaching the gospel at this point. But even people aware of the gospel have room to experience great fear in their lives. So how about if I just dismiss us with this sense of, I'm not going to fix the awkwardness that we feel right now. I'm going to send us from here with it. And I might just put some of those signs all around the building next week. To help us remember who it is that we come here and how amazing it is that we can get this close. Amen? Amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful week.